I was coming out of becoming a, a dad for the first time, and anyone you know who has children and goes through that knows there's quite a bit of an adjustment period, especially when you're uh, used to going out and doing whatever you want. So uh, the kid came along, and uh, all of a sudden my social life just did a complete belly flop uh, and then drowned at the bottom of the pool. Hal Niedvieski is a writer who lives and works in Toronto. Thanks to his newborn, he found himself housebound. But it wasn't all just diapers and baby food. He wrote a book that year called The Peep Diaries, How We're Learning to Love Watching Ourselves and Our Neighbors. Hal's thesis is that we're completely remaking our world using online social media. The book ends with Hal trying to milk his online social network to restart his real-world social life. I, uh, I had this idea uh, that, that I needed to revitalize my social life, have a kind of a coming out party for myself that I was back in town, back in action, you know, after that first year of, of uh, fatherhood. Um, and uh, I realized that I, I though I, I was doing very little socializing in real life uh, over this year, I had managed to acquire some 500 uh, Facebook friends. And uh, that... Uh, this this could be a, you know in my mind this was a, a potential source for new uh, for new friendships. Uh, so I invited all, all my Facebook friends to a local bar and I said you know I'll buy the first round. Uh, this is the Hal needs new friends uh, evening and uh, come on down. Uh, and I, I sent this out on Facebook and and for those of us familiar with Facebook. There are three responses that you can give to an event. You can say yes, you can say no, you can say maybe, or you can just ignore it altogether. So I ended up uh, having, uh, I think, about 40 people say yes, uh, about 100 say maybe, uh, and the rest saying either no or ignoring it altogether. So I thought to myself, okay, this sounds good. You know, this is shaping up nicely. This is looking like 50 or so people are going to come to my party. So I called the bar and let them know what was going on and uh, put on a new shirt, splashed on my man perfume, and uh, down I went to the bar to uh, meet the new friends of Hal. Uh, The only problem was that... uh, only one person came to my 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 event. Uh, Paula, who's a lovely person, and, and it was nice uh, that she came. Except that she, I think, was a little weirded out by the fact that that she was the only person at the How Needs New Friends party, and she only stayed for about twenty minutes. It's pretty well documented. I was the second guy on the internet. There was Al Gore, and he was doing crazy stuff, uh, groups, alt. I, didn't, I never went there. I actually made one of the first web pages. It was updated daily. PeterChoice.com, all the news you need to know about me, updated daily. Before the word blog entered the, the uh, parlance of the web, I was one of the first blogs. It had to have been one of the first ten blogs. The first web pages like mine used to be free of a format. They were all different. You would click on one picture and not know where you would go. It was supposed to be like a fun house. And it was a loose structure, uh, but it, I just kept, it kept getting bigger and bigger, and then I had to rename things because I didn't 
think of uh, putting it in this tidy little archive thing, like 1998 stories, 1997 stories. I, I uh, just put them together in uh, like stories about death, uh, stories where I get in trouble. Well, I was really just writing stuff that was just come pouring out of me. I had to get all of the stuff out. And uh, I also posted like nude pictures. Remember I had the nude gallery? And uh, I was getting a lot of hits. One of my best features, most popular one, was called Nightmare in the FM. It was my personal story about how I got fired from this radio station. Back in the old days, I would get fired from all these jobs, and I had nothing to do but feel bad about it and about myself. But here I was empowered, and it was a new form of media. So if you are rotten to someone, someone can put up a webpage. I was one of the first guys to do that. But, you know, I, I didn't want it to look like the revenge site. What I wanted to do was be a voice in the new media. I was doing this because instead of being a passive uh, reader or a viewer of other people's material, now I was excited to be the creator. I was the one putting the ideas for it. So it was a big thrill back then. I actually used to think when I was riding my bike around town that uh, I'd better go home and update my web because I bet everyone's reading it right now. I bet everyone in these houses is watching PetersChoice.com. I had sections on my website, like my, oh, it was called The Dark Truth, My Life Story. And I'd always add to it and subtract from it. Uh, it kind of uh, was a big thorn inside of my family because everybody read it. There was a page I put up about the death of my father. And uh, I wanted to put a picture of him in his open casket. I thought it was a good picture. But the only time I actually uh, uh, followed someone's advice, uh, my Aunt Betty told me not to, so I didn't. I just put the picture of the closed casket. My father, uh, actually, he was a brilliant man. We kids didn't know this. But he worked on, on cellular technology in the 50s, basically inventing the cell phone. But he couldn't talk into an answering machine. He was a total luddite about like new, new products and things. So he was a contradiction. So when the computers started to just be the only thing that they would talk about in the early 90s, about what's coming, what's happening there, I decided I had to get behind the new media because of my father. When I met somebody, I, I would go over to the nearest computer, by then it, they were everywhere, in the library, wherever you were, and I'd type in peterchoice.com, and they'd be so impressed. But I didn't know, I didn't know how to do these tabs, uh, search functions, and I was always beating my head against the big monitor because of the help function. The help, I could never put in my question, like, where did the page go? Do you remember that about the web in the early days? And there was no way to hit the back button. It just disappeared. And, you know, you'd cry. I knew I couldn't learn. It was all about inviting the proper people over, paying people even to, like, help me. But everybody that really knew the stuff, uh, the stuff where the, web, the Internet was growing into what it is now with the web pages being totally with video and interactive stuff, they kept that a secret to themselves. It was like a secret. It's, it's, it's not in anyone's interest to help you make a great site. I would go to the library after I spent 20 hours uh, updating and making new pieces, and it would be wrong. Remember that? You would, watch, you would look at the page on another computer, and it would come in all fuzzy and weird and upside down, 
and it would that would drive me mad. That's when I first started to uh, go crazy. And as an artist, I I was so embarrassed because that's not what I wanted it to look like. And uh, that's the way it is now. If you go to that waybackmachine.com, it's in fragments. I was uh, lucky that I was able to upload audio because someone came over some day, one day and, and and we put some pieces up that were very good. Me yelling on other uh, radio host shows, but it was frustrating for me because it, every time I sat down at that computer, every day I turn it on and there's something new I couldn't figure out. I couldn't just sit there doing what I know and getting to the creative process. The creative process I was really good at, telling the story, telling real funny stories, telling wicked stories, uh, challenging uh, people, being, you know, challenge, challenging the status quo, uh, doing my politics, uh, trying to be inspirational. And uh, I also posted like nude pictures. Remember I had the nude gallery? I was trying not to be too esoteric, but things were pretty much written like song lyrics, stanzas. I wasn't writing like a newspaper reporter or the way that they write now, straight ahead. I was trying a, a style of my own that was different than the way I spoke, a little different than the way I spoke on the air, but uh, a, the similar aesthetic I wanted to translate to this new media. And I had this theory, this theory that these embarrassing things that I used to not tell people, if it's embarrassing, put it up, write about it. So I thought I, I was being cathartic. I thought I was working through my problems. I was being my own psychologist. I think I was a little afraid of the interactive part. I would post emails that were negative, and I would look for them. There, there weren't that many. But I didn't want people to have free access because I was fighting with so many people. I didn't want them to, a message board that was just calling me all sorts of names. But now I'm thinking about it. I put myself out there. No one could have exposed me like the David Letterman thing. I was coming clean about things people didn't even want to know about. It was too much information. PeterChoice.com lasted until I moved to Los Angeles. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I had so many new things to write about. I was on the set. I was on movies. I'd never been in movies and TV shows. However, I had to stop it then. Because somebody got fired from Deadwood by just posting on a, on a public site some kind of gossip. And I realized that I didn't want to screw things up with my new Hollywood thing. Also, it was never celebrity geared. I don't care about celebrities other than myself. I was making myself a celebrity. That's why I was doing it. I was trying to be an artist. Someone asked me the other day, what's your occupation? I just say artist now, not actor. Then you sound like a retard. My website ended on a day that I didn't know it would end. It was just the day they cut me off because I wasn't paying the bills to West Coast. And the last day was about how I was depressed, miserable, I can't find a job. And I was actually using the webpage like a tin cup. Can somebody, like I must have many fans, maybe someone will send me money. So it ends on a really bad note that I'm not proud. It wasn't a great page. Out of all the pages I made that were so nice, so clever, the, way, the Wayback Machine has that page.
I'm Jessica Schrader, and I write the blog What I Wore, where I photograph myself on an almost daily basis and share the what, when, why of how I put together my outfit. Um, and along with that, try and give a little style advice to other women trying to feel their best about how they look. Sometimes I will be in public at a restaurant or on the train or walking down the street and someone will recognize me. It's really flattering and it's kind of cool, but sometimes I'm in the middle of a very important conversation with my fiancé or I'm with a friend who doesn't get this whole online thing and it's very kind of weird to them. I hope it doesn't get too much more invasive than it already has. I mean, I love sharing everything about my life. I mean, I'm on the Internet in four places, so... It's a great thing for me, but what I wore being a fashion-based thing, I can kind of cut it off and say, eh, this isn't really fashion-related. I don't feel like I need to tell you about that. But when it's like, here's my life, then it's, you know, where's the end of how much your readers are going to ask from you? And it's only recently that I've decided after having conversations with friends who don't don't want to be included that it was time to carefully back up. And not in a really, really noticeable way, but, you know, some details are just off limits. I just didn't feel like I wanted to tell anyone what my wedding dress looked like until I actually wore it. Because I didn't really want the criticism. I didn't, I didn't really want any applause either. I just wanted to let that be a personal thing about my life. I uh, recently asked my commenters to behave like they would in real life. So you probably would not walk up to someone and say, I don't like your outfit. Sorry, sweetie. Um, and I don't think I don't think any of them would come up to me and say that's my face. But behind this wall of anonymity, people feel like it's okay to say that. And they say, "Well, you're putting it out there for everyone to see." And that's true, I am. But I'm also putting it out there, like, like, "Hey, friend, check out what I wore. What did you wear today?" Or you know, it's kind of like this personal thing. So all of a sudden, people are saying, "Oh, be professional. Take this criticism." But I'm saying, I was never professional. I was always your friend. Why are you all of a sudden? treating me like this. I'm just like a regular girl. I, You know, sometimes I think, oh, I'm giving this up. I need a vacation. And every time I try and take a break, I don't. <laughs> I just can't. There's something compulsive about documenting my life and and getting feedback on it, positive feedback. Those, you know, feedback tools help my self-esteem. And so, I don't know if I could totally vanish from the Internet. I think I'll stop blogging so much in my life when um, my fiancé and I decide to have children. We've already discussed that we don't want their names to be public or their faces until they're old enough to want to do it. When you bring a bring a child into your life, a lot of it is about growth. You know, a lot of it's about change and and having somebody that that's more important than you, um, that that you want to take care of and teach and show, and, and then you can all grow as a family together. And so, so we were missing that. That was the one thing. So after a couple years of different treatments and and things um, that weren't going anywhere, we decided to adopt. And we were matched up with somebody who was, who's, you know, a great birth mom, and 
Everything was coming together. Coincidentally, a friend of mine at, at work, you know, this guy that I'd really bonded with through all of these just, you know, horrendous projects, you know, through all that pain, he was going through the same thing uh, at home and, and he went through a different route. He went international. So he was adopting from China. We were adopting from, uh, from you know, down south. And at the same time, my, my old high school buddy Jason was was also having a child. He was, you know, doing it the old-fashioned way, you know, which, you know, that was, that was all right. We, we, didn't, we didn't hold that against him, but it was, uh, you know, with the three of us one night decided to all go out because we were all about to become fathers, and, and it was really exciting. It was a really exciting time for our lives. Matt pulls out a picture of Olive. Um, his, his the daughter that he's going to be adopting from China in, in a couple months and he was really excited and was showing it all and she looked really cute and they explained that he he'd already set up a Gmail account for her you know I mean she's three months you know not even in the country yet and he's already thinking about a, a Gmail account so I started I, I just laid into him you know what you really need is a Twitter account for your new baby and right there, something clicked. We all just looked at each other and said, wait a minute. You've got all of these anxious first time parents. They don't want to miss anything. They don't want anybody to think that they're bad parents. So they're always watching the baby monitor and you know, any time that they're doing anything for themselves, they're feeling guilty. So what what our site was going to be was you hook up that baby monitor, throw in some baby speech recognition to make it a little extra sexy, and you put it out you put it out on Twitter. So wherever you are, you're constantly engaged in your kid's life. Baby says goo, it goes out on Twitter, you find out about it, and grandma can play too. We're going to call it baby talk. And it was just brilliant. It was just this million dollar idea. Quitting your job, you know, it takes a little bit of risk, but we were all willing to do that. And, you know, our, oddly enough, our wives were also, you know, also had jobs, so they were willing to support it. So we, we bundled up all of our ideas and we hit the road and we started raising money. We started calling it Parenting 2.0, people like that, you know, they, they, that all of a sudden they'd start nodding their heads. And once they started nodding their heads and, you know, we knew we had them. One of Matt's uncles cashed out part of his pension fund, you know, to because he really believed in us. You know, he really believed that Matt was the the smartest nephew that he'd ever known, and you know, he gave us about twenty grand, and then we got another ten grand from from my aunt, and you know, it wasn't enough to pull a salary for any of us. It was just enough to buy some servers and hire a Chinese programmer who could help us with some of the hard parts. So we set up shop in Matt's basement. Jason was busy making phone calls, you know, trying to line things up, trying to line up deals. I was writing code. We had our, our other guy, uh, He Jung, who was our, our Chinese programmer, was working with us. And we never had enough time. We were always about to expire. When you're working on that seed money and you can see that your runway, you know, the amount of time you have before your thing has to take off, when your runway is so short, you don't have a lot of time to debate stuff or think about anything. You just have to go. 
And plus, you know, three of us had the other clock of we're all about to become dads and, you know, we're sleep deprived already. But, you know, when Junior arrives, we're, we're not getting any sleep at all. We're just going to be changing diapers. So one night, Jason comes in and says, I've got some bad news, some good news, and a little more bad news. I say, all right, well, what's going on? He says, we're never going to make it. I ran the numbers. We will never be able to finish this in time. You know, I said, all right, that sounds pretty bad. What's the good news? He said, well, I found the site that's on the auction block right now called chattytype.com. It was a kid's interactive play session thing and I think we could buy them real cheap and we could easily reconfigure that for babies there was one more piece of bad news we had to fire Ki Chang and I had to do it because Matt didn't want to run into him when he was going to China so after the acquisition I was our first chance to really go through what we had bought and I was looking through all the code and looking at the database, and it wasn't what we thought we bought. It was something else. I called over Matt and Jason and showed them what I found, and right there we knew it was over. It was done. Can you uh, elaborate? Um, talk about what you found? I can't get into it. I mean, we, we owned this for a period of time, and we lost our shirts on it. And I don't want to wind up on the sex offender registry. I'm not saying you have to go into it. Just just say that you found kitty porn. Beep that out. You're gonna to have to beep that out. John, what what is wrong with you? I I I'm in the middle of adopting. John, you said we could record the story about what happened to Baby Talk. Your start. I'm telling you the whole story. The point is, if you're gonna go out on the internet thinking that you're gonna find this big gold mine, you're not. You're gonna find something else. I'm tired of the blog. It stopped. It stopped nourishing me. I I wasn't enjoying it anymore. I I found that the only way to to up the readership was to talk about things I wasn't I wasn't interested in. To to create controversies about things that don't matter. Stupid comic book arguments, and uh, I, I was fed up with it. When I called cartoonist Eddie Campbell. His blog hadn't been updated for over three months. Clearly, he'd lost interest. Because when he started it a few years back, there were links and daily updates. But I'm not calling him a slacker. It's not like he doesn't have anything else to do. This month sees the release of The Year's Half Pants, a 640-page collection of Eddie Campbell's Alec stories from Top Shelf Comics. Eddie Campbell first drew Alec McGarry 30 years ago. He was Eddie's alter ego, and over the years, Alec and Eddie have gone from working in warehouses and crawling pubs to marriage and kids. Both have become successful comic artists. Eddie Campbell did the drawings for Alan Moore's From Hell, which got turned into a bad movie, but it did provide the necessary funds for Eddie and Alec to buy a house in Australia, where they both live. Eventually, Alec McGarry sort of becomes Eddie Campbell, 
you can witness this in the later part of the book, but we're never really sure if the Eddie on the page is the one doing the drawing. You see, Eddie Campbell was doing autobiographical comics long before this kind of work had a name. And there's something so unique about what he does, his work stands apart from the very genre he helped inspire. Eddie Campbell set out not so much to document his life, but to tell a true story. I'm so pleased he had a few moments to talk with me about his work and his approach to telling stories about real life. I wanted to tell the story of my, of my times as I saw it. Uh, I, I hadn't really worked out that I would be the central figure in it. I, I hadn't completely rationalized that at the time. I, I didn't think that my own story was any more interesting than anybody else's. But inevitably, if you're telling the story of what you know, you're, you're going to be the, the pivot, the, the, the central point of view in the story. And so it turns out, being a, a pictorial autobiography, I suppose, but that wasn't the intention. Did having a stand-in like Alec give you more license to mythologize? I don't really always feel personally attached to the stuff that I've drawn. It's almost like it happened to somebody else. I find it just as easy to talk about Eddie Campbell in the in the third person when when that time came along. Hmm. We're dealing with matters of fiction where where you fictionalize the 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 stuff of your own life. You you create a fictional version of yourself. So there's a fictional Eddie Campbell that's not the same person as me. He's closer to the fictional Alan McGarry than, than either of them are to the real Eddie Campbell. All of this is very, is very complicated, and you, you can create a conundrum that, that, that revolves around forever and ever, and you, you can never get off the roundabout. I think the business of organizing material into stories is fiction, even if the stories originate in real life. The, the opposite of fiction is non-fiction. It's, the opposite of fiction is not fact. I'd like to maybe look back to, to some of the early stuff in the, in the collection here. I'm thinking that there's, you know, you, you have many different ways of telling stories, but I'd, I'd like to kind of focus on two. There's these, these larger narratives, like Graffiti Kitchen and the King Canute crowd, but then there's also these amazing one or two page fragment slice of life type forms, and they're yeah, very the, different. The, the, difference, the difference there is the difference between telling a story that, that happened some time ago, which is all complete with a beginning and an end, and and the anecdotal style of telling what happened yesterday, what happened last night, and those are the one-page things. They, they, they're not woven into a bigger narrative because I'm, I'm recording it on the run. I'm wondering how those two distinct ways of telling stories, you know, worked for you, complemented each other, because you were working on them both sort of simultaneously, no? Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. They're definitely, they're definitely two separate modes, and most of the mythologizing tends to take part in the, uh, in the kind of story where I've had time to, uh, to think about it, to, to sift the details and organize them in, according to the rules of fiction. And very often I'm doing that, but deliberately making it look as though I'm not doing that. I'm making it look like I'm telling an offhand anecdotal story, but I, I'm usually cunningly casting an eye down to the, the end of the road where the thing is leading. 
Hmm. The, I, the thing I'm always trying to avoid is an over-finished image. Something that... Uh, Something that sometimes a picture looks truer if it's if it's more immediate. Yeah. The business of once once you introduce the uh, the techniques of, of of finishing a picture, you're into an area of falsehood, of of lying, of pretending. The uh, very often the the spontaneous image is truer. And then again, sometimes that also that also can be a lie. It only looks truer because it's spontaneous. <laughs> it seems like you could take that back to what you just said about these moments on the run. Um, you know that that artifice of connecting them together more in a plot way can kind of ring false, and maybe that's why these sort of these uh, anecdotal pieces that you know are make up so much of of so much great work and, and such a great section of, of the whole omnibus. Maybe that's why they work so well. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I tell nothing. I wish we hadn't called it an omnibus. I, an omnibus to me is a collection of disparate things. And I think we'd stuck that title on it before I really I really realized what a an integrated uh, piece of work it was going to be. It took me a while. It took me a while to realize when I was actually organizing the material that it could. There was the possibility of arranging it um, in chronological order, as though it had been conceived of a piece. That appeared to me while I had the stuff on the desktop. I thought, well, that's interesting. I could arrange this so that these characters appear to age from page one to page six hundred and forty. So you've got a dark-haired Alec McGarry at the beginning, and by uh, 600 pages later, he's got a, a mop of gray hair. And you can see it evolving gradually. Hmm. Somebody the other day, in one of my other interviews, um, said that this, the, the, the fact of, the, of these 640 pages spanning 30 years of time uh, unintentionally created an effect of sadness. Because we don't we don't really want to see time disappearing that quickly. We don't really want to contemplate our mortality. One of the themes one of the themes in the book is the uh, memento mori, the the reminder that we that life is short and we're all going to die. And I hadn't even realised that this was a an obsessive theme of mine until I, I arranged the material and I thought, gee, I, I, I keep, this, this idea keeps cropping up. So coming back to you and Alec then, I'd like for you to sort of tell us the story of how they merge, if, if you wouldn't mind, like from, from the perspective of the creator. Was this an easy transition for you when Alec and Eddie sort of became one? Well, I just started using my own name. Somebody writing... Um, Somebody writing a review of the Snooter pointed out that there, there's a panel in the Snooter where I say that the Snooter is a, an insect, it's a moth, I think, that flew through my window in, in 1994, and it bit me on the hand, and uh, it, I had this strange rash that developed overnight. And in the fiction that I, of the book, I've, just, I've said that this was my, my wake-up call and it was a, a moment of change in my life. 
in which I became another person. And some astute reviewer noted that that was a point at which I started using the name Eddie Campbell as, as to replace Alec McGarry. And I hadn't actually realized that. That was totally subconscious. It was the moment in which my midlife crisis arrived when I suddenly decided to write, to use my own name instead of the, the fictional one. And was that easy for you? Was that an easy transition? I almost feel as though this is a bit like trying to work out uh, continuity for Spider-Man or something. It's like, you know, when they keep working, they keep changing the backstory and they've introduced something that couldn't work then because he hadn't met Dr. Octopus at that time. (laughs) Something doesn't work because, because of continuity. So the book is not Omnibus, it's Alec Final Crisis. (laughs) <laughs> so, so I found in a couple interviews that you wrote, you use the word personal work a lot. I'm avoiding saying comic book here because I think of the comic book as a completely different medium. I think of myself as an artist and I just get on with it. I make it, you know, when I, in, when I brought out the book, How to Be, How to be an Artist, somebody, somebody criticized and said, well, don't you mean how to be a comic artist? I thought, no, to me, to me as an artist, this is, this is my art. If it looks like comic books, you know, that's neither here nor there. I, I'm telling the stories of my time, and, and this is the, the medium I, I'm using. And if you want to argue about what it's called, you do so. But I'm, I'm, too, I'm too busy getting it done. But too often I get distracted into these stupid arguments about uh, about what it is and where it fits in in the larger culture of the world. Uh, and it's a, it really isn't something we should be thinking about. We should just be getting the work done and uh, the work will carve out its own place in the world, which I think is what's happening. I think, I think we have arrived at a point where there is a great body of, of, of worthwhile comics culture, comics art, uh, and it, it it has a serious presence in the world. You know what? I'd love to come back and wrap up with the blog. We talked a little bit about it. But in a way, you know, watching you get excited about it at the beginning was, you know, for me, what resonated was that you were kind of doing blogging before blogging even existed, especially through those anecdotal, you know, one or two pager uh, strips. I know what you mean, but... Blogging was blogging was almost uh, the perfect medium for me. It was, uh, and, and I I launched myself into it, think, thinking of blogging as a serious literary form. To most people, it, it it's not. But then you know, most people are not artists or writers. But I set myself the challenge right at the beginning that I would say something. I would cause myself to say something interesting every day for an entire year. I was very enthusiastic about the idea of vlogging as, as a as a new literary form. When I think of my works, you know, when I think, oh yeah, you know, I did that book, I did that book. Then, then I did a year. Then there was the year of blogging. That's one of my fa- <laughs> that's one of my favorite works, the year of blogging. A lot of people felt at the time that this was a that I didn't think it was a waste, but people thought previously he would have done a comic out of this, but he's not doing that now. We've we've been robbed of a comic. 
Well, we haven't been robbed of the comic because I took some of the best anecdotes and I, I made little comics out of them. So you've, you've got the thing in the end that you thought you were missing. situation room of the White House because of the suicide bombing that killed those uh, eight CIA officers in Afghanistan. It's such an amazing story. Double agents, bunker bombs, but I kind of feel it bumped another story off the news, which was also fascinating. And I was actually kind of hoping to talk to you about it. The, the drones being hacked by terrorists. Well, I guess I'm about to blow your mind then because at the time of the attack, there was a drone overhead. Drones are like a very sophisticated, all they are is a very sophisticated remote control airplane. And like most remote control airplanes, one of the things that's controlled from the ground is the flight characteristics of the of the plane, right? You make it go left, right, climb, dive, that kind of thing, right? You control the flight. The second thing is that they have sophisticated camera systems on them, and those are also controlled from the ground. All these are controlled via radio signals. Uh, in the case of the drones that we have over the battlefield in Afghanistan, they also are equipped with missiles, and so that is also controlled you can fire missiles so you control the, the flight the video and the missiles for all from the ground and so when the media reported about the hacking of the drones what what was going on was the insurgents had figured out a way using commercial software apparently to intercept and view the video feed that was coming from the drones and so they could tell what we were looking at through the drones. That's what that's what they meant by hacking the drones. And on the night of the 30th, when this attack happened, maybe they used it to help them plan the attack. We don't know for sure that the video system was compromised, although I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Because what we do know for sure is that the flight system was hacked. The drone just took off on its own. As you can imagine, this kicked things up a hundred notches. I mean, we have now have a situation where an armed drone is out of our control. Oh my God. I, I don't see how it can get any worse than this until it does. The signals all go dead and we lose our contact with the aircraft. 
we're not receiving signals anymore. It stopped transmitting. Okay, I can understand it getting hacked, but how do you lose track of it? I mean, it's your armed drone. All we had was just a, a bird out there somewhere, which is very small, designed not to be seen by radar. So we we lost it. It was it was a lot like the movie Apollo 13 when they're trying to bring the astronauts back. It was just all hands on deck. We were trying to do anything we possibly could to figure this out. And about 10 hours later, we get this incredibly weak signal on the SATCOM network. Now our SATCOM, that's the satellite communications network. That's like this sky grabber on steroids. I mean, if there is a radio signal out there, it locks on and finds it. So this signal pops up. It's got the same signature as the drone got an identification number we know what it is we're getting the video feed from the drone we pull it up on the screen and somebody in the room just gasps and says oh my god this thing is over Tel Aviv so we've just got no warning like bam the video feed comes on this thing is over Tel Aviv and although we're trying to raise the Israelis, I just feel like we're frozen. We're just like watching a slow motion car wreck that we can't prevent. It passes over the army headquarters, passes over major utilities, power company, etc. It gets to the coast right at the Mediterranean. And it, it turns north. And at this point, we're confused. You know, we're wonder what are they looking for someone yells you know are there any ships in the area maybe maybe it's maybe the target is a ship and we're just watching this thing and we're, we're completely befuddled now i need to i need to stop here and explain something to you nudity at beaches in israel is not normally accepted however there is one beach that has women-only days where they're allowed to go topless. That beach is called Metsitsim Beach. This drone flew from Afghanistan to Israel to Metsitsim Beach to spy on topless Israeli women. Breast, zoom in, bigger breast, zoom out, pan right, ass, zoom in. Look at the ass, back out, over here, more breasts, zoom in, zoom out. And this just kept going on and on. So now, in the control room, it's like that scene in Apollo 13, except everyone is huddled around monitors watching topless women at Metsitsum Beach. The official story is that the Israeli jets did what they were supposed to do. They scrambled, they got to the beach, and they blew this thing out of the sky. But that's not what I saw. The video feed started to pan back and forth really rapidly as if the plane was actually shaking. You ever see like two kids battling over a Wii game? I, I think that that's basically what happened. I imagine that you got a couple of guys that are 
in a basement somewhere in Dubai or Yemen or Syria and they're got control of this drone and they're they've been zooming in on boobs and now they finally they're starting to fight about who gets control who wants to zoom in on what they're pulling on this joystick and stuff back and forth they lose control of the drone and it crashes into the ocean but what about the missile system do you do you think they hacked the missile system too oh of course of course they did they just didn't care culture is basically the, the evolution of pop culture. So I argue uh, that we are kind of in the, in the, in the next wave of pop culture. Uh, the original pop culture involved us watching uh, celebrities uh, going about their, their kind of preordained uh, talent, where we are now much more interested in uh, celebrity divorces and celebrity uh, babies and celebrity drug problems and celebrity you know mansions than we are in in what they're actually performing so we're, we're more interested in their daily lives and and this is sort of uh, spilled over into being more interested in everyone's everyday life as a as, as a kind of a pop culture as the new pop culture what's wrong with us you know we we're just as uh, as interesting and i think that's proven to be true we are entertaining each other through our own uh, everyday lives so that every snapshot you take every time you brush your teeth uh, every choice of of restaurant or uh, you know experience at the grocery store suddenly has value uh, and this value comes from uh, eyeballs who are watching you. It comes from uh, social interactions that, that that you now can put uh, you know can put a premium on uh, followers, so-called friends, uh, people who are commenting on your blog. So there's a value there. Hey, people are noticing me. They're paying attention to me. And then it even has a financial value. Uh, you know, we're we're reaching the point where where. People are, are starting to get paid to say that they brushed their teeth with, with Crest last night, you know. Um, and, the, you know, and then there's this kind of whole world of, uh, of hey, you tell us everything you do, buy, watch, uh, and we'll give you something back. And that might be something as simple as uh, a Facebook page, uh, a place to put all these thoughts out there. Um, or it might be something like uh, points. As we ha- as we see with with everything now has a reward uh, system, so you shop at this grocery store, fly this airline, rent these cars, stay at these hotels, uh, and you receive points. And in exchange, you are you are supplying information about your everyday life. The 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 commercialization of it is um, in some ways overshadowing it, and and also uh, the way in which. We, we move so quickly into turning ourselves and other people into, into entertainment product. Well, you know, this kid is great, but it would be better if this kid was trapped in a balloon.
that shift has consequences. What shocks me is, is, is how quickly social mores are changing and how quickly people really are, are saying, you know what, I don't care if, if, if everyone is watching me. I don't care if uh, a corporation or um, you know, a bunch of corporations are tracking my every move as long as I uh, get, get what I think I want out of it. And those changes are are shocking, you know, and like, I don't care if there's a a camera on every street corner. That's great. I'm into that, you know, because that's going to make me feel safer. And as a byproduct, it could generate some some quality entertainment moments. Uh, I might see myself on TV being confronted by a robber. You know, so there's this really this incredible change in in how people perceive things like privacy, uh, people's perceptions of things like surveillance, uh, people's attitudes toward what they're willing to kind of publicly put out there. And there's also this, you know, another kind of really shocking thing is, is the way people will say, Oh, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Uh, all the all these scandalous details that can be accessed about me, and it doesn't matter because everyone's doing it, and no one's going to use it against me. You know, that's just sort of the new normal, uh, and and people really believe that. And you know, and 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 I say to them, uh, you know, it, it only appears to be the new normal because because not everyone is doing that stuff, and. Uh, and when when it comes time to apply to college or or to to apply for a job or uh you know to go before the judge uh, <laughs> uh they will use that uh to make decisions about what kind of person you are it would be foolish of them not to people are really kind of um blasé about this and they sort of want to believe uh, what they want to believe. They want to believe that they can kind of turn their lives into these uh, these micro-celebrity commercial properties, get all these benefits, uh, but not, not have to deal with the negatives. And celebrities have been dealing with the negatives, uh, uh, you know, for, for, for decades. We've seen the negatives of what happens when uh, every aspect of your life uh, becomes available for public consumption. Uh, you go crazy. You uh, become very disconnected from real life. Uh, things uh, uh, that you thought were private emerge into public and uh, come to mark you, and and you can never get away from them. Um, you know, so so it really, there's a lot of shocking, interesting things about this. Uh, the the least shocking of it, I think, is that people are enticed to participate. Um, you know, because it's kind of like, well, what have we been telling people for the last uh, hundred years? Pretty much, celebrity matters. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, the only thing that really uh, represents success in society is celebrity and the acquisition of, uh, of of a lot of attention from a lot of people. So, you know, you can't just we can't just uh, keep keep telling people that and then once they have an opportunity to sort of try some of this stuff out for themselves uh they're going to you know and uh, i i i want to taste celebrity and you want to taste celebrity and anyone i've ever met wants to taste it uh and you know people will say i don't want it but i don't believe them Thank you. 
This episode of Too Much Information is called The Inferior Mirage. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, Bill Bowen, and Laura Mayer. It featured Hal Niedvieski, Peter Choice, Jessica Schrader, Jonathan Marston, Eddie Campbell, and our TMI Washington correspondent, Chris. For even more information, visit the TMI show page at wfmu.org. And that's where you can also subscribe to the TMI podcast. Thank you.